So again, as I as I said, we're going to get into to Jonah here. So the the kind of the, the plan, and I'll, I'll go into this a little bit further later on. But the the plan is that today is just kind of an overview study of the book of Jonah. Now, the book of Jonah is somewhere in the Old Testament. If you don't know where it is, it comes after Obadiah and before Micah. So you can flip there, you can turn there, you can tap there, wherever you are. We're not going to get into a whole lot of reading and, and studying specific things within the text this morning, just because, again, it is just kind of an overview. We're going we're gonna to look at some history, and then we're going to go through and actually see some of the, the breakdown, the outline of, of our study over the next few weeks. So again, and many of you may be wondering, why the book of Jonah? Of all the different books that we could jump into, of all the different things that we could study, topical maybe even, why the book of Jonah? There's, there's 63 other books that we could have looked at. I know there's 66 books. There's 63 that we could. We just finished Thessalonians. We're in Peter. We're getting ready to go into Romans, so that's why I said there's 63. There's 63 other vo- uh, choices that we could have looked at. Why the book of Jonah? Now, I thought about going into Genesis, but that's a really long book to try and do a short series on. And there's a whole lot of things within that book. So why the book of Jonah? Well, one, it is a rather short book. It's four chapters, but it is packed full of things that we need to learn even today. There are truths there that we need to dive into, that we need to apply to our lives today many of us may think Jonah I know Jonah he was that guy that got swallowed by a whale and then he he said that one thing that salvation is from the Lord and then got spit up on the land and then we think of I know Jonah but do we really understand what God is demonstrating in the book of Jonah so that's why I chose Jonah, so that we could dive into that, something that we, we know something a little bit about, but something we need to know a lot more about. So the story of Jonah, and you see up there, I, I put a little funny little picture up there, but we, Jonah has been told so many different times in so many different ways in so many different media. And maybe some of you remember the, the tale of, of Jonah through veggie tales. That Jonah didn't get it. Jonah didn't get it. There we go. Someone knows it. But what was the what was the it that Jonah didn't get? What was that it? Again, this is why we're getting into the book of Jonah. We know again, we know that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Scripture tells us that. What kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it, was it a, a megalodon? Was it some other giant fish that's now extinct? We don't, we don't know, but does, that, does it even matter what type of fish Jonah was swallowed by? Why was Jonah swallowed up? Was it for his punishment, for rebelling, for not following God's command when God said, go to Nineveh? Or was it for Jonah's salvation? Now again, this, this small book is, is really a great book if we take a little time to, to explore its riches. Of course, we could always say that we can say that about any book of the Bible. It's a great book. We need to, we need to slow down and explore and dig and dive. Even Leviticus and, and Numbers, as, as, much, as hard as it is to kind of do our daily Bible reading through those books, those, those are great books to, to slow down and dive into and, and explore the riches. God is telling us something in Leviticus and Numbers. What is it that we need to learn? But here we have, we have Jonah. And again, like I said, it's a small book. There's four chapters, total of 48 verses. Not a, not a lot there in, in the number of verses. Chapter 1 actually is the longest of, of the four chapters. It's got 17 verses. 
Chapter 2 and chapter 3 each have 10 verses. And then chapter 4 finishes with 11. Now, I did, I did debate whether to, to read the entire book to kick off this, this series so that we have some understanding of the full context. But, but there's just so much stuff that I want to get into that, that we'll actually we'll read each chapter as we get into the study. So we don't need to, to spend the time reading 48 verses this morning. Now, some of you might remember that we, that we had a church history course a few years ago. And some of the ladies are, are actually going through some, some history now. And one of the things that, that was covered is the word hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? Now, if you, you missed that course or the ladies, you, you were unable to, to attend those, those things and that part of that discussion. But, but what is hermeneutics? I know that's not a word that we often use in, in today's vocabulary, but what is it? What does it mean when we say hermeneutics? <coughs> Biblical hermeneutics is the, the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation. This is interpretation of the Bible. Now, there are several different ways of interpreting Scripture. The first one is literal, the literal interpretation. Now, this does not mean that, that every passage of Scripture is, is to be taken literal. The context has to be applied to the, to the passage. So when Jesus said, we are to be lights of the world, he was not implying that we literally are to be lights of the world. But rather, the plain meaning of the text should come forth. Jesus said, you need to be lights of the world. That means you go out and you shine the light of Christ. You share the gospel. You share the good news. You do the works that bring glory to Christ. You are the example, the representative, so the world may see as they would see a light shining in the darkness. Moral interpretation. This is the another way of interpreting the Bible. In this method, the, the reader seeks to uncover multiple layers of meaning, meaning within the text. But they also stay within the text, with regards to the text. Then there's the allegorical interpretation. Much like the, the moral interpretation, this is a method that, that seeks secondary meanings. It's looking, again, deeper than what the, the words on the page say. Now, this portends the, the conclusion of, of people and events in the Old Testament as only foreshadows of people and events in the New Testament. Usually with regards to Jesus and his actions. Now, viewing such biblical truths as allegory allowed, allows the reader to conclude what type of person God was seeking as believers. And then there's the anagogical interpretation. I know many of us have not heard of, of that one, but this one is not as popular or prevalent anymore these days, but it is still out there. Now, this method relies significantly on numerical values of Hebrew letters and words. The focus here is on Masonic uh, prophecies and, and the study of the last days. Similar to the moral and the allegorical method, the importance is not given to the actual story, but to a perceived deeper meaning behind the story. Now, I ask you, which method do you think that we here at Hope Community Bible Church subscribe to? The literal interpretation. Now, I present to you these, these different types of interpretation because not all people, not all who call themselves Christian, not all who call themselves biblical scholars believe Jonah as a true historical tale, a true historical event. They believe that as a, an allegorical tale, event. Now here's a couple reasons as to, to why they interpret Jonah that way. First, they believe that Jonah represents Israel, uh, a nation who has not shared the heart of God for lost people and has run away from their calling to be God's light to the nations. 
Second, the, the fish would represent uh, Israel's captivity. When, when Israel sent into captivity of the Assyrians later on, this would be the fish swallowing Jonah. which this would also mean that the calling to go to Nineveh represents the implied proper behavior or response that Israel should have once their captivity is over. Now that's a lot of deep reading into the text. Instead of allowing the text to, to speak, you're telling what the text should say. However, we know that Jonah is a real historical figure because there is a prophet mentioned by the name of Jonah in the 8th century B.C. in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, which lines up with the events of Jonah. We see that in the opening chapter of Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> now also, this, this time frame, the 8th century, coincides with the time when the Assyrian Empire was powerful. It wasn't at its full height, but it was still a mighty empire. And if we, we still had any doubt, then we, have, we, we look no further than Jesus Christ himself. If Jonah did not truly exist, then why would the Son of God refer to him by name? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jonah was three days and three nights in the stomach of a big fish. This is Jesus Christ speaking. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the grave also. Now Jesus ends this discourse with the phrase, and see, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a prophet that presented the grace and the mercy to an unbelieving, unrepentant, evil, vile city. But someone greater than Jonah is here. Now Jesus considers, well, G Jesus knew that Jonah was a real historical person and that those events really did happen. As we get into our study today, what, what I want to do this morning is, again, to, to break down what we're going to cover into two parts, the historical part of Jonah, so we have some understanding, historical, geographical even, and then also dive into the, the, the text a little bit just to, to break it down into an outline of what we're going to cover over the next few weeks and coming months. Now, why would we want to do this? We, we see who the, the king of Israel is in, in the opening chapter, but how far removed is that, is that from David or from the Babylonian exile? Where is, where is Tarshish and where is Nineveh that is spoken about in the, in the opening verses of Jonah? Where are those cities? There are, there are some things that I, I want to put into our minds as we walk through this book. We read it. Like I said, there's 48 verses. How much time has elapsed between all of those verses. Was this a, a one-day event, a two-day event, a, a, a six-month event in the course of Jonah? And like I said, the, the second part of this lesson will be to, to go over an overview. We're going to break it down into part one uh, through four, or point one will be chapter one, and, and point two will be a chapter two type of an outline. Now, I'm going to flesh out a few things. I'm going to present to you a few things that, that are in each of these sections that we'll go over. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to connect the dots. There will be certain things that you may, you may see and understand, but they run through the entire course of the book. And so I don't want to necessarily connect a point from chapter 1 to chapter 4 just yet. We'll, we'll work through all of those things through the course of this study. So hopefully if you're taking notes, keep track of where your notes are as we will refer back to them through this, through this study. But there is one, one interesting thing. Many names in the Old Testament have meanings. 
So here is a, an interesting thing to, to put into your notes if you're taking notes is, is, do you know what the name of Jonah means? It means dove. Jonah means dove. And where else have we seen the dove in Scripture? The dove is a symbol of peace. We see that in both the account of the flood when Noah sends out the dove and it returns with the olive branch. But we also see it at the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit of God descends on him as a dove. Symbolically, the dove from from Noah tells us that God declared peace with mankind after the flood had purged the earth of its wickedness. The dove represented his spirit bringing the the good news of reconciliation of God to man. The dove represents peace. Jonah is God's messenger of the good news to let the people of Nineveh know that they can have peace and reconciliation with God if they accept his message. And do you know the message that Jonah will deliver? I'm not going to tell you just yet. I'm not going to go. <laughs> then I'll be way ahead of myself. But, but there's a message that he has to deliver. And it's not that God loves you, has a great plan for your life, and wants you to have your best life now. That is not the message of Jonah. Now, as, you, as we read Jonah, and, and we will, as we begin each message starting next week, we'll, we'll read chapter 1 as we study chapter 1. And you are free to read chapter 1 in between now and, well, maybe not right this minute, but, but between this Sunday and, and next Sunday so that you have some reference as we, as we go through. But here's another point of interest. Jonah is referred to in the third person. There is no I, me, we. But this also runs through a lot of the Old Testament writers, the major and minor prophets. Now, again, this has led some to speculate as to to who the actual author is. And again, led to the belief that this is not a historical fact. However, it is the custom of Old Testament authors that I just just said, it is the custom of, of how the Old Testament was written. Moses never says, I and me. He always refers to himself in the Third Testament. The autobiographical nature and firsthand accounts of the unusual events and experiences give credence to the fact that Jonah is the author. He knows what happened. He was a witness to the events that encompassed him. Now looking through the records given to us in, in 2 Kings chapter 14, we can take note of a, of a couple things. First, at the end of verse 25, and this is in 2, 2 Kings 14, 25, look at the end of the verse. We can read, according, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah, the son of Amittai. The prophet who was of gath Heifer. This is the same identifier from the opening remarks that we find in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. And again, it's up there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now again, here is another thing of great interest that is profound and, and many of us have not connected because we do not have the geographical understanding of where cities were and and where certain uh, uh, landmarks were in these times and in this this area. But this is the same Jonah who was from Gath-Hefer, which is near Nazareth. Jonah, who is a prophet and was from a place near Nazareth, which is in Galilee. But what did the Pharisees say? In Jonah chapter 7, verse 52. No prophet arises out of Galilee, but Jonah 
was a Galilean. Now, second, we can, we can see who the king of the northern kingdom was at that time, Jeroboam II. During the, the long and prosperous reign of Jeroboam II between 793 and, and 753 B.C., that's 40 years, this, this makes Jonah a prophet to the northern tribes just prior to Amos. So not during necessarily, their, their times may have overlapped a little bit, but they're, so if you think Jonah and Amos, when you read those together, it's, it's really close in their time frames of being prophets. It's during the first half of the, the 8th century B.C., now, as a, as a prophet to the, the ten northern tribes of Israel, Jonah shares a, a background and a, and a setting with, with Amos. They were dealing with the same matters. They were speaking the, the message of God to the same people who were doing the same things or not doing what they ought to be doing. The nation of Israel enjoyed a, a time of relative peace and prosperity. Both Syria and and. Assyria were were weak, like like I said, they were they were a strong empire, but they were they were not yet at full strength. That God would raise them up to destroy Israel later on, in about one generation. Now this, because they were not as strong as they later would become, this allowed Jeroboam the second to enlarge the borders the northern borders of Israel to where they had been in the days of David and Solomon. Now, spiritually speaking, it was a time of poverty. They were, they were secured nationally. They, they had economic stability. But spiritually, they were in poverty. The people were religious in practice only. They were empty spiritually, ethically, and morally. As a result, God was going to punish her in the nation of Israel by, by bringing destruction and captivity from the Assyrians in about 722 B.C., about one generation later. Jonah, though a prophet of Israel, is not remembered for his ministry in Israel to the nation of Israel, which could explain why the Pharisees erring, erringly claimed that no prophet comes out of Galilee. Rather, the book relates the account of his call to preach repentance to Nineveh and his refusal to go. That's about all we know about Jonah. Not his, not his work and, and not his, his preaching to the nation of Israel, but his preaching to Gentiles. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And it was infamous for its cruelty. It was, a, it was a historical nemesis of Israel and Judah. The focus of this book is, is on that Gentile city, which is founded by, by Nimrod. And if we know who Nimrod is, Nimrod is, is the great-grandson of, of Noah. Perhaps the largest city in the ancient world at the time, it was nevertheless destroyed about, like I said, about a, a generation after the repentance of this generation. So the repentance that we see, that we'll see later on, was not, it did not last a generation on. It's a warning to parents. Teach your children. Remind them children. Grandparents, remind your children and your grandchildren. Up here you see kind of where all this happened. So Israel is way down there in the uh, towards the, the, the bottom of that, that yellow in, in between Egypt there. So you have the Assyrian Empire and the, and the, and the Egyptian nation or the Egyptian, even the Egyptian empire. And then you have Israel and, and Judah right there. And so Joppa is, is right there. Now Joppa, and again, I'll get more into this, but Joppa is that same city where Peter went or was staying when he had the vision. So kind of kind of understand where, where we are. That's Joppa. So uh, 
Jonah went down to Joppa, boarded a ship, and went out to sea. And at some point he was thrown overboard, and it took three days and three nights for the fish to take Jonah back to land. We don't know exactly where the shore was that he got, as Scripture says, vomited up onto shore. But it was nowhere near where he started. And then it was a very long walk back from where he was thrown up onto the shore and then to, to Nineveh. You can see the red line's where he, where he actually went, and then the green line is where he should have went. It was a much shorter travel, a lot less trouble if you just obey the Lord. So, and over there towards, towards the, the left of the screen, you can see Tarshish. Tarshish. There's several cities named Tarshish in Scripture and, and through historical understanding. Not sure where the Tarshish was that he was heading. Could have been in Spain, could have been all the way in Britain. But he was going east, or he was going west. God said, go to Nineveh, which was east. So God said, go this way. And Jonah said, I'm going to go the opposite way. <clears throat> so if you go to the next map, the next slide, you kind of understand, this kind of gives you a picture of, of kind of where in the distance between all of these points. And then you understand that there, there has to be a passage of time. You're not going to, how, how fast can you walk 550 miles? It's going to take you some time. Now, again, that Tarshish, understand it's not important exactly to, to know which Tarshish or where exactly that was. The, the point is that Jonah was called to go east to Nineveh. Jonah went west away from the call of God. He was going as far away from the presence of God that he could possibly go. That was Jonah's idea. That was Jonah's mindset at the time. Now, Israel's political distaste for, for Assyria, coupled with a sense of spiritual superiority as the recipient of God's covenant blessing, produced a, a, an uncooperative, a, a hardness against uh, uh, people of authority. So we see that with the Pharisees and, and, and Jesus who comes and says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. I am God. So even at that time, it still remained. So Jonah had the same attitude. He had this attitude towards God's request for missionary service. Jonah was sent to Nineveh in part to, to shame Israel by the fact that a pagan city, a pagan city would repent at the preaching of a stranger. Whereas Israel, who would not repent through the preaching of many prophets who have seen the many miracles, the mighty hand of God, yet they would not repent. Now Jonah would, would, was soon to learn that God's love and mercy extended to all, all of his creatures, not just his covenant people, not just Israel. The book of Jonah reveals God's sovereign rule over man in all creation. If you read Jonah, you can see, I, I pray that you can see, read through it kind of at a slower pace than your normal pace, but you can, you'll, you'll start seeing the sovereignty of God as you read the book of Jonah. Creation came into being through him, Chapter 1, verse 9, and responds to his every cam, uh, a command. Chapter 1, verses 4, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Jesus employed the, the, the repentance of the Ninevites to rebuke the Pharisees, thereby illustrating the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts and their unwillingness to repent. The, the heathen city of Nineveh repented at the preaching of a reluctant prophet. It's not what the prophet says. It's not, the, it's not necessarily even the, the heart of the prophet. But it's the one who works through the prophet. In spite of the, the overwhelming evidence that, that he 
was, was actually their, their Lord and, and Messiah. Jesus is preaching and teaching and presenting to them. Yet they still, the Pharisees still had a hardness of heart. Jonah is a picture of Israel who was chosen and commissioned by God to be his witness. Who rebelled against his will but who has been miraculously preserved by God through centuries of exile and dispersion to finally preach his truth. And this kind of brings us to our second part here where we get into a little bit of the, little bit of the, the, the text here. We'll go through the outline. So our first point that we'll cover, which will be chapter 1, we'll, we'll get into this next week, but, but our first point, sovereign to send. Sovereign to send. In chapter 1 of Jonah, we, we see the prophet running from God's will. We um, jump right in and we see God calls him. Jonah says, I'm out of here. I don't want any part of this. But the overarching message here that we might miss is that it is God doing the sending. Jonah didn't say, you know what? I feel a need to go preach to these people. God said, go. Now, whether Jonah is running or is in full obedience, it is the sovereignty of God that is on display. And really throughout this book, as I said earlier, that this added attribute of God is, is laid out for us to discover. God is sovereign to send Jonah to Nineveh to deliver the message of redemption. In point, point A of, of what we'll get into next week, uh, the prophet will... We'll, study as much as we can of the prophet. The, in that opening verse, the verses of this chapter, we are told a little bit about this, this man Jonah, and we, we talked a little bit about it already this morning. He is the son of Amittai, but we are also told that he does have a bit of rebelliousness to him. This is the only recorded instance where a prophet of God has tried to refuse the message of God. God, you have told me to go, but I don't want to go, so I'm not going to go. You told me to go there, but I'm going to go over there. Jonah's attempted fleeing was, was not fleeing from the Ninevites. He wasn't afraid of the Ninevites, this mighty city of, of uh, 200,000. He wasn't concerned about the Ninevites. He wasn't afraid that they might what they might do to him. He was running from God. He was fleeing from the very presence of God, if that's even possible. But as I said, this was Jonah's mindset. If I go away from where God wants me to go, I can escape. This brings us to point B, the storm. The storm. Right at the very start of this portion of the text, we, we read that the Lord, that is Yahweh, brought up a storm upon the sea and, and thrust it upon the, the ship. As I said earlier, He is sovereign over His creation. Not just, not just people in their, in, their, in their lives. Not just the cattle on the hill are His, but the very winds over the seas obey His command. But he thrust it, he brought up the storm and, and thrust it upon the, the ship to the point where the where the ship was about to be broken. Again, this is an attribute of God that is revealed to us, his omnipotence. He is all powerful. There is no limit to his strength. If he wishes to, to send a, 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 a storm so severe that it, it destroys every ship going vessel, he could do so. But because he wants to preserve the ship, but yet slow it down and get their attention, he calls upon a storm. Those that believe that, that God created the, the world and the universe and then left it on its own are in contradiction to what this very portion of text reveals. If God left it alone, he is not the sustainer. He cannot call upon the wind. To do his bidding. 
God is very much in control of his creation, and he can do what his, he wills according to his own counsel. And in this moment, he needed to remind a wayward prophet of his own might. Jonah, do not forget who I am. I can bring upon a storm that will crush you. Point C, the fish. There is a great fish here. We will talk about that. The last verse, verse 17 of the first chapter, speaks of a giant fish, a big fish. We're not told what kind of fish, but it was a fish. Might have been a whale. Could have been a shark. Who knows? Like I said, does it matter? This is a, a point where we can get into some debate Again, uh, uh, some into the weeds, a great kind of conversation to, to, to have around the dinner table, the lunch table together sometime. What kind of fish do you think it was? A whale? What kind of whale? Whale is not a fish. That is correct. It is a mammal. <laughs> that is getting into the weeds. But, hey, it would be a great, great topic of conversation over a, over a shared meal, no doubt. We are, we are not told, again, what, what type of a fish it is, but, but for, for all we know, it could have been some kind of giant sea bass. Some of you are like, what's a sea bass? If, if I had the time to indulge that, that specific topic, I, I would. We could, we could debate certain things, but, but the point is that God did not just, and he could have, but God did not just create a fish for that one purpose at that particular time. He appointed an already existing fish to do his will. That is what the text is telling us. The Lord appointed the fish, and then it was three days and three nights. And I, I, there are so many more things that I want to say here, but, but we'll move on. So, uh, uh, point point two. This is into chapter chapter two. Sovereign to save, sovereign to save. As we read this this second chapter, we we may get the idea that Jonah is, is praying this prayer from the belly of of the giant fish, which that particular prayer he is. But in that prayer, you'll see that he's referencing something beforehand. He's in the belly or the, the stomach of a giant fish, and he, and he prays. Now, in, in verse 2, we see that it is in the past tense. I called. He says in that very prayer, I called upon you. Like I said, it is a, it is a, it is a prayer in part recalled an earlier prayer. I called upon you, and I thank you that you heard that earlier prayer. That is what Jonah is praying here, in part. In chapter 1, Jonah is on a, on a ship in a storm so severe that it, was, it is about to be broken. The ship was, was about to be torn apart. And then, his shipmates throw him overboard. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I do, not, I do not know what you would do, but if I was in the sea in that storm, a storm so severe that it's going to destroy a ship, the ship I was just on, and then I am cast overboard. Granted, that storm is abated. But I'm just reminded of just the mightiness of God. Not only because the storm came up, and as I hit the water, the storm is calm. And I am left alone in the sea. What is your first response? But to call upon the Lord. Now most of chapter 2 is devoted to prayer. That Jonah prays from the belly of that fish. And so we'll break that down. Part uh, point A in there would, is called the petition, verses 1 through 4. In the first part of this prayer from the belly of the fish, Jonah prays that he cried out to God, even after his disobedience, even after he disobeyed, even after he went the wrong way. He cried out to God. 
And again, we see the character of God. After everything wrong that Jonah did, knowingly and willfully that Jonah did, Jonah says this, you, God, you hear my voice. You heard my call. You heard my prayer. Jonah called, and God in his grace received him. Point B, this is chap, uh, verse 5 through 7 in chapter 2. We will, we will find that in this portion of Jonah's prayer called the provision, we will, we will find that in this portion of prayer that, that as he is praying about the depth of despair, and really that during the depth of his despair, he turned to God, and it was God who saved him. You see, there is a provision of God in this prayer that we will miss. The provision of remembrance. In Jonah's great distress, Jonah remembered God. But it wasn't a, oh yeah, I remember God. God help me, I remember. The remembrance of God is what God has promised. The promises of God. The deliverances of God. What you have been given in God. These are the remembrances of that Jonah had in his despair, in his, basically his day of death. He was floating alone in the ocean. And yet he recalled what he had in God. And one of those great things is that God hears the prayers of his children. That is a promise. That you have. No matter if the sun is shining or the rain is falling in your life, God hears your prayer. And this brings us to point C of chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 10. The last point, which covers the final three verses of chapter 2, which consists of the last two verses of Jonah's prayer, and then a narrative verse about God, again, commanding the giant fish to do something, which we all know. But of those two verses of, of Jonah's prayer, these, these change in tone. If, if we actually read through, and again, we will eventually, we'll get there. But if we, we read through that prayer, we'll see the shifting tones. And here's a, these last two verses, there's a tonal shift. Of course, at the, the end of verse 9 is, is very familiar to many of us. Salvation is from the Lord. We quote that often. But do you know what the verse begins with? What is the first half of verse 9? Here's what he says. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will worship you, God, with great joy. Here he is in the belly of a fish. He's just been thrown overboard. He's been swallowed by a great fish. And he says, I will worship you, God, with great joy. Not when I get to land, not when I get back to Jerusalem and, and not have to preach to the Ninevites will I preach, will I praise you with great joy and give you thanksgiving with great joy. He says, I will, right now, worship you with great joy. Now, I need to back up to one verse, to verse 8, where it says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now, that, that uh, vain idols, or, or excuse me, that, that word regard means worship. For those who worship vain idols forsake, consider it worthless, their faithfulness. That's quite the contradiction between verse 8 and verse 9. Those who worship idols are not even faithful to the idols because they know it's fake but Jonah says no matter where I am I will worship you with great joy and this brings us to chapter 3 what we'll cover <clears throat> point number 3 sovereign despair we see that Jonah repents 
He's repenting when he says salvation is from the, from the Lord. Deliverance is from the Lord. He repents and calls, uh, and God calls Jonah to again preach his message to the Ninevites. This again reveals to us who our God is. We actually see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see that in, in Hosea, when, when Hosea is called to take a wife and then to go and take her back after she wanders off. But also when the, the Lord Jesus Christ comes. We, he, he came to redeem what was lost. A second calling to the same man speaks volumes about God's persistence, his forbearance, and his mercy. One of the greatest lessons that we can glean from, from the book of, of Jonah is that God gives second chances. You have been redeemed. You have been secured by the blood of Christ. You will stumble. You will sin. You will fall short of the mark. But God in his grace and his mercy will restore you. It's not after you have been saved and you, and you mess up, you're out. You're gone. You're kicked off the team. That's not God. Brings us to point A of chapter 3. Sent again. God sends him again. He calls him again and then sends him again. This second calling is, is almost identical to the first. And we'll get much deeper into this when we get to this chapter. Nineveh is the place and the message is from God. Again, this is not the message that Jonah wants to deliver. It's not a, a well-crafted message by Jonah. It is the words that God gives him. God has a desire to be merciful to Nineveh. Not because Nineveh deserves it. Not because Nineveh has potential to be something that God desires to be his representatives. Nothing of themselves. But God wants to show his grace and his mercy. And in spite of Jonah's disobedience... God will show mercy on an evil, wicked city. There is nothing that will stand in the way of God's will and his plan and in his glory. If he so chooses to spare a nation that is wicked and cause them to repent, even through a disobedient servant, it will come to pass. And generations after will reap its benefits if they are reminded of the way of the Lord. But through the grace of God, Jonah responded differently to the second calling to go and preach. Instead of going the opposite way, he went straight to Nineveh. The message that he delivered was not a popular one. I wonder if we could actually deliver. I, obviously, it wouldn't come forth the same way. Um, the, the penalty wouldn't be the same as what Nineveh heard. But if we went and preached the same message that, that Jonah did to Nineveh, what would the results be? He did not deviate nor soften the message. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't say, well, it's not going to go over well. They're going to reject the message. They're going to reject your servant. He went faithfully and proclaimed the message. And what was the message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah was, was not restricted by his prejudice against Nineveh at this point. He went and freely spoke that without repentance, they were doomed. They were destined to be destroyed. They were given basically a countdown clock. You don't have the rest of your life. Well, I guess technically you do have the rest of your life to repent. And the rest of your life is 40 days. If you do not, you will be destroyed. You will be overturned by the living God. The three days journey that we find can be understood as, as either taking literally three days walking to get through the city with its towns and villages on the outskirts or that it took three days of preaching in the whole city. Either way, this was an important city for God's purposes. And again, we'll get deeper into that as we get there. Point B, born again. Born again, the astonishing results from bold preaching of the true message of God is presented before us in verse 5. Don't hold back from the truth of God. 
Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast of both man and beast, and all would wear sackcloth. I don't know if you've ever held a piece of sackcloth in your hand, but I do not want to wear sackcloth for any amount of time. And I don't eat a whole lot of food, but I do enjoy food. They believed at the preaching, the bold, unrestricted preaching of the word of God. They believed, and they believed it so heartily, so fully, that they realized how far outside the will of God they were, that they repented and forfeited food, pleasurable-feeling clothes, so they might focus on the repentance that they had received, the repentance of giving themselves solely to the Lord at his call. We see even the, the king of Nineveh and his nobles, the ones who would have all the, all the, the wonderful clothes and, and all the wonderful food. The best of the best they would be. But the, the king of Nineveh and his nobles would, would be sitting in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. Now, we don't normally sit in ashes. That, that is a true symbol of the remorsefulness of sin. It is that outward demonstration, not of just I'm a sinner, but just the, the full remorsefulness of the sin. I sit in dust and ashes, Job says, because I am remorseful. Now the, the king and his nobles sent out a decree for all people to, to cry out to God, call, call out to God, to, to pray to God for that forgiveness. The king sent out that decree to cry out to God that he would turn away from, that they would turn away from, from their own wickedness and violence and so that God might turn and relent from his burning anger. Now, true repentance goes beyond the outward signs. We're talking about the, the, the sitting in ashes and putting on sackcloth and, and having, a, having a, a, a fast. These are the outward signs of repentance. The people of Nineveh could have just fasted and put on sackcloth and hoped that would have been enough. I'm doing the, the things of righteousness. I am doing those religious-type things. That should be enough, Right? But when the king sent out a royal decree urging, now that, that word uh, let here in, in the text, and again, like I said, we'll get into it, that word let is not a command. It's not a command. He's not telling them to do it. He's urging. He's urging them. May you do this so that God would relent. May you do this so that you will turn from your evil and wicked ways and the violence that is among you. To pray for the forgiveness of, of again, their, their waywardness and their unruliness. True repentance is that turning, turning away from sin and calling or crying out to God through prayer. And when that is done sincerely, when that is done sincerely, God is faithful to each individual who does that and will save them to the uttermost. If you sincerely repent of the sin, if you are sincerely remorseful of the sin and call upon the Lord, he will save you to the uttermost. There is no question of the amount of salvation. It is to the uttermost. Point C, gracious again, gracious again. God saw that what they, they did. He took into account their repentance, not their rituals. The people fasted so they could focus on their repentance. Let's go, let's go without food, without feast, without uh, reveling, so that we might focus. We might be in prayerful focus for the repentance. They were in sackcloth so that they, they understood that their lives were spiritually immoral. God saw the genuine repentance of the people and he relented on the calamity that he said he would bring upon them if they did not repent. This goes back, back to, to Exodus. If you obey me, God says, if you obey me, you will be blessed. And if you disobey me, you will be cursed. This time, 
and this generation, they obeyed the repentance. And this brings us to chapter 4. So far through, through three chapters, we briefly see an elegant move and counter move plot between Jonah and God, do we not? Jonah does this, God does that. God does this, Jonah does that. But Jonah preached. Nineveh repented. God relented and disaster for Nineveh was averted. But Jonah did not rejoice over the fact that Nineveh escaped the announced judgment. Why would Jonah not be happy for this great city's salvation? Whatever the reason for Jonah's displeasure, God was displeased with him. Point A, grace given. Jonah was, was not just displeased here. The grammar of the word here indicates that Jonah was exceedingly angry. He was hot under the collar. I don't know if any of you have ever reached the limit of your, your anger. You just explode, hopefully not, because then you're in sin. But if you've seen someone just blow their top, shoot their, their, their cork, light the fuse and watch it explode, whatever the phrases are, if you've ever seen somebody, that's Jonah in this moment. He's exceedingly angry. He's, he's exceedingly angry that the Ninevites would not be receiving the wrath of God. He wanted to see Sodom and Gomorrah. But instead received the gracious salvation of the Lord. Now back in chapter 1, there is no recorded exchange between Jonah and God. God called him, Jonah ran. Jonah didn't say, can we, can we work this out? Maybe don't send me to Nineveh, but send me over here. No, there was, there was no exchange. God called, Jonah ran. That's what, that's, what we, that's what we see. But there had to be some sort of conversation between Jonah and God with regards to Jonah's desire not to be the one to deliver this message. As he knew the nature of God and that he was a forgiving God. Jonah was so mad that, that he wanted to, to die because of how the events would play out. He knew. The question that the Lord asked Jonah in verse 4, do you have a good reason to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? But Jonah doesn't answer. He does not give a reply to the question asked by God. Perhaps Jonah had no good reason. He had no good answer. He was mulling around the question in his mind and realized, I've got no reply. How many times do we have a good reason to be exceedingly angry like Jonah? Especially over the matter that, that Jonah was. Do we ever wonder how God could save that person? God, really? That one? Are they worth your salvation? I mean, we may not ask that question in those exact terms, but is that thought ever for a moment cross our minds? It's a question to ask ourselves. Point B, I need to move along. Point B, grace taken. Jonah not only left the question unanswered, but then broke off the conversation with God and left the city. City was saved. Jonah was mad. He stormed out. He went out and built a booth on the elevated east side of the city to protect himself from the heat of the day and the chill of the night. He was waiting to see what would happen to the city. Now again, we know that some time passed between verses 5 and verse 6 because Jonah needed a plant to shelter because the booth he built withered. Booths were built with plants. He plucked plants, built a shelter, the leaves of those plants wilted. Wilted. He was no longer getting the shelter he needed from the sun in that east wind. So he needed another plant. So again, God appointed a plant which diverted Jonah's attention from, from uh, the city. So instead of being exceedingly angry that the city would not be receiving, he was exceedingly glad for the plant. His personal comfort was more important to him 
than the salvation of a great city. God appointed a worm then, and then appointed an east wind to strike at that personal comfort of Jonah. The east wind was oppressive to Jonah because of the heat and the dust. Point C, grace, grace explained. Here we, we will see that, that God himself explained and expounding the contrast between the concerns of God and the concerns of man. This is a great reminder of, of the great gulf between humanity and the triune God. Your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, God says. And here we, we see a little bit of that played out. This is a great reminder, uh, again, of, that, of that, the great gulf that we cannot bridge ourselves. Jonah looked with compassion on an insignificant plant. God looked with compassion on the great city of Nineveh. God's pity was for the people and animals he created and caused to multiply. Jonah's pity was for a plant that came into being in a night and died in a night. It gave only fleeting pleasure. But Nineveh, with its teeming population, held the potential of giving permanent delight to their creator. The great gulf. There is much that we can learn from this little book. Many people think that, that Yahweh is an angry God. And that he is ruled by his anger. And that he is just waiting for someone to do something wrong so that he can pounce, that he can pour out his, his anger upon them. Now, uh, these are the same people who, who read some small text of Scripture, like Genesis chapter 19, verse 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. You have heard it before. Taking any part of scripture out of context. Will lead you down the wrong path of understanding. Yes God did destroy the cities. And all those who lived there. Including the livestock and the plants. What is misunderstood. Or what is or, or about this particular text. And what many other texts that are taken out of context. Is um, that there was an interaction between. Abraham and God's angel before their destruction. Many of us know that, that story, understand that what happened here in Genesis. Abraham was seeking to ward off the coming calamity by asking if the cities would be spared if there would, could be found just 50 righteous. God, would you spare the destruction if you found just 50? Yes. Then what if only 45? Yes. Then what? Then 40? Yes. 30, yes, 20, yes, 10, yes. Well, guess what happened? The cities were destroyed because there wasn't even that many righteous. The only righteous there were Lot and his family. Jonah declares the character of God in, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knows who God is. Jonah knows that God will be gracious and merciful. But Jonah was jealous. Of that grace and mercy. This same declaration is made throughout, throughout scripture. But one major concern. Is that the wrath of God is on display in the Old Testament. And so this is called out by skeptics. What they fail to see is what Jonah. Even as his own displeasure and extreme anger. Jonah knew that God would display who he is. Because that is who our God is. He cannot deny himself. He cannot change himself. He is immutable. He is consistent. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. That is who our God is. Just look at what else Scripture says about the character of God. 
and this is just a few of them. There's a, there's a lot. There's a lot more. But just the, these few verses here, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, they refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a, a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, the Lord's loving kindness, uh, loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Nahum 1 verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. And Joel chapter 2 verse 13 and rend your hearts, give, uh, uh, rend your hearts, open your hearts, and, and, and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Turn away from the wickedness of this world, for God is ready to be gracious and compassionate. There has always been, and there will always be, the wrath of God upon those who are disobedient to God. To his enemies, there will always be love, but the guilty, those who remain in their sin, must be punished for that sin. Just loving them will not remove their sin. Just preaching to them will not remove their guilt. But it is through the grace of God, that unmerited forgiveness, that we who live under the new covenant see in Jesus Christ. Jonah wanted to keep the knowledge of that grace and mercy to himself, much like Israel, you know the song, This Little Light of Mine. It tells about letting the light of the truth of God shine so that others might see it and recognize it. The light is like that of a candle, not a flashlight. You see, the, the light of a candle shines in all directions. The light of a flashlight only points in one. Direction of the holder, that's the flashlight. We are not to point the light to people, but point people to the light. Do not be like Jonah, full of jealousy, with the hoarding of the grace of God, but be generous with the sharing and with the preaching of the truth and the light. You never know what the effects that the Holy Spirit will bring to your sharing. Let us pray. Father God, we do thank you for this book of, of Jonah. We thank you for for what is revealed in these words and in these texts and what lessons we might uh, glean from it. And Father, I pray that we would glean and understand who you are and, and what you have done, even through a disobedient servant. Father, and at times we, we do go wandering away from your will, away from your direction. And Father, we just pray that we would be forgiven of those things. We would see where we have erred. We would seek that forgiveness, that full restoration, that we might be a fully employed to the, the coming of your kingdom, and to the fulfillment of your will here on earth. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.